Do you know that? It's a very short day when you're preaching, isn't it? <laughs> All right, you'll come on ahead and give us the Word of God tonight. Good evening. Good to be with you this evening and to have the opportunity to share some thoughts. I'd like to read some verses of Scripture, please, as found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, and commencing to read from verse 27. Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, commencing to read from verse 27. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning on to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs of them never bear, and the paps which never give suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And there were also two other malefactors. Oh, I'm really on now. <laughs> <laughs> And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them deride him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, if thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today, shalt thou be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And we'll quit our reading there. One commentator has written, the cross is emblematic of a death under the greatest guilt and the deepest curse. Thayer says of the cross, that it was the well-known instrument of most cruel and ignominious punishment borrowed by the Greeks and Romans from the Phoenicians. To it were affixed among the Romans down to the time of Constantine the Great, the guiltiest criminals, particularly slaves, robbers, and the authors and arbiters of insurrection. Crucifixion and what we refer to as the crucifixion within the Christian community is one which we focus on. It is one of the foundations for our Christian faith and belief. And yet we focus on the center cross. We focus on Jesus who was upon the center cross, and it is only right and proper that we do so. 
But I would like this evening to focus on the two others who were crucified on that particular occasion. The gospel writers have given us an account of the happenings of the lead-up to the crucifixion, of what happened on the day and what happened after the crucifixion. And yet, as we read their accounts, we suddenly become aware of the fact some details are missing from certain accounts. Why the omissions? I have no answer at this moment in time. And so to fully get the picture and fully understand, we need to read the four accounts of the Gospels and of their recollection of what took place and of what happened on that particular day. And with regards to the thieves, we know who it was was on the center cross, but who are those who were crucified with Jesus? Matthew and Mark refer to them as two thieves. Mark, Luke refers to him as two malefactors, criminals, evildoers. And yet John, in his gospel, by the words he used, would nearly indicate they were insignificant, they were of non-importance, for he refers to them as two others. And yet, there is a conversation that took place on Golgotha's hill between Jesus and the two thieves. That was very important. That is very important to the Christian and to the Christian church in this day and age in which we find ourselves. And yet it is only Luke who records that conversation and gives a full account of what took place, of the words that were exchanged between Jesus and the two thieves upon the cross. One may ask why. Were they not there? That is, the gospel writers, did they not hear the conversation? For Mark records for us in chapter 15 and, and verse 50, these words, all forsook him and fled. Speaking of the disciples, they forsook Jesus when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet John writing in his gospel in chapter 2, verses 26 and verse 27, makes us aware that he was present at the crucifixion. He was close to the cross, for Jesus spoke not only to his mother who was with him from the cross, but spoke to John himself. He said to his mother, woman, behold, thy son. He said to this John, son, behold thy mother. We could ask why such omissions, but I feel we would not come up with any satisfactory answer. I feel very much it is one of those questions I need to add to my list of questions to be asked when I get to heaven, for I feel it will only be there that I will understand the reason why. Matthew Henry as he approached the crucifixion and as he showed some insight onto it, he gives it the title of the appointed execution day. For it was an appointed day. It didn't happen by chance. It didn't take place on a whim. This was a day appointed for the legal authorities. It was a day appointed. They had had their day in court the evidence had been presented. The jury had brought back their verdict. The judge had passed sentence. For them, this day was already marked on the calendar as a day of execution. But it was also a point of day in the calendar of Jesus Christ and of God. For in the courts of heaven, when God and Jesus talked about man's salvation and how he should be saved, of what would be required, of the sacrifice that would need to be made, Jesus responded 
and he says, here am I, send me. Matthew, writing in chapter 27, says in verse 26, Jesus was scourged. The scourging or whipping was usually a whip of throngs used to inflict punishment. It consisted of a handle to which leather cords or thongs were attached. These were sometimes knotted or weighted with pieces of metal and bone. This was the cruel punishment, especially as it was implied by, inflicted rather, by the Romans who were not under the moderation of the Jewish law which forbade scourging above 40 stripes. Crucifixion was such a painful, shameful, cursed death that merciful princes appointed those who were to be condemned to it by the law to be strangled first and then nailed to the cross. Scourging was the custom before crucifixion, yet we are informed that a Roman could be crucified, but he could not be scourged before crucifixion. For those condemned to be crucified, they had time to prepare for death. There was a law passed by the Roman Senate that gave a decree that the execution of criminals should be deferred for approximately at least 10 days after sentence. And while the thieves had at least 10 days to prepare, Jesus had scarcely 10 minutes to prepare for his crucifixion. Scourging, we may ask why, what was the purpose, what was the reason. Under normal circumstances, it was used for obtaining information. But under the crucifixion, it was used to weaken the body and thus quicken the death of the one upon the cross. Crucifixion, we shudder. We shudder to think of it. We shudder to imagine it. And yet it gives us an insight into the cruelty of man and how he dealt with his fellow man in various situations. But what of the two thieves? We hear in the Gospels about Jesus, about his walk to Golgotha's hill. He had been scourged. He had been beaten. He had been forced for a period to carry his own cross. And when he could not, another was appointed. But in like manner also the two thieves had been scourged. Their bodies wrecked with the pain of the whipping and beating. And then placed upon them the weight of their crosses that they had to bear the weight of the cross adding to their pain and discomfort. And as they shuffled, shuffled their feet, I would say, they weren't stepping out in a good manner, but shuffling their feet down the road, they made their way as Jesus did to Golgotha's hill. And there with very little ceremony, rough handling as was Jesus, they were laid upon the cross. They were nailed. And then the crosses were raised and dropped into the holes in the ground that had been beforehand prepared. And as that cross hit the bottom of that hole, and as their whole body was ranked with pain, and their sinews stretched, well could they adopt the words of the psalmist in Psalm 22 and verse 14, in which he says, All my bones are out of joint. The very armpits and joints would have strained under just that sudden jolt, that sudden top. And there raised between earth and heaven, three men hung, hanging on the cross. But who were these thieves? How did they get there? Why were they there? 
perhaps with a little insight we may understand something more about them. I would suggest to you that it is highly unlikely that these two thieves were just incidental individuals who so happened to be crucified on the same day. I would say to you that these thieves were co-workers, they were partners in crime, and that they both had had their day in court, they both had faced the charges that had been put against them, and they both had been found guilty in that manner. To understand that, let's go back to Luke 23 and verses 18 and 19. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city, and for murder was cast into prison. Insurrection, a rising up, open resistance to established authority. Barabbas was a rebel leader. He deferred, no doubt, to cause a coup to overthrow the government. Sedition, conduct and speech, uh, inciting people to rebellion. Josephus, the Jewish historian, informs us that brigands were common throughout Palestine. There were robbers that dwelt at Traconius. At first their number was no more than 40, but they became more afterwards, and they escaped the punishment Herod would have inflicted on them by making Arabia their refuge. Celius received them and supported them with food that they might be mischievous in all mankind and gave them a country to inhabit and himself received the gains from their robbery. Jesus, in speaking in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, speaking of the parable of the Good Samaritan, tells us of the one who, traveling on his road, fell among thieves. They stripped him of his raiment and wounded him, leaving him half dead. These bandits were ardently pursued by the Romans, and it would appear that the thieves who died with Jesus were caught red-handed during one of their infamous raids, and that Barabbas was their leader. Barabbas, well-known revolutionary, a brigand, member of a robbery gang, a bandit, treason, murder, and felon, the three most uh, notorious crimes that are usually punished by the sword of justice. Mark, in his comment in Mark's Gospel, chapter 15 and verse 7 says, And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. Barabbas surely was guilty of all three. And as such, I would strongly and I think I'm safe enough in saying that the cross on which Jesus died was the cross that was originally planned for Barabbas. Barabbas means the son of the father. And since the leading rabbis were called father, it has been claimed that Barabbas was the prodigal son of a religious leader. A worse criminal could not be found, suggestive, as I have already said, in the fact that Christ took the murderer's place and his cross. Pilate, in his effort to get out of a sticky situation, when faced with the, what was he to do with Jesus, the custom was at the Passover, one 
prisoner, could be given amnesty, could be released, set free from all charge and punishment. He thought to himself, well, who have I in prison? He had no one greater, no one more notorious, no one more dreaded and feared than Barabbas. And so when he offered Barabbas up in competition to Jesus as a choice for the people to, share, to decide who should be released, he thought he had a brainwave. He thought to himself, this is no contest at all. Jesus will walk it. Surely they will not want Barabbas released. They knew of him. They knew about him. Many had no doubt experienced the activities that he had been involved in and had suffered as a result of. But what do we see? We see that the religious leaders were on the job. They stirred up the people. They said, call for Barabbas to be released. Do you see, for the religious leaders, I would say, and I stated, that their nose was put out of joint. For when they were in power, they had a hold on the people. But when Jesus came, things changed. Jesus came to set the captives free and bring liberty to them who are bound. For the people, Jesus had given them a freedom and liberty that they had never had before. They were bound by religious rules and regulations. Jesus, in his comments regarding the religious leaders, he called them hypocrites. He said they put burdens on the people that they were not prepared to bear themselves. So their nose was out of joint. They had lost face. They had lost position. They had lost hold on the people. They weren't interested that a just man was going to be put to death. They weren't interested that a guilty man who had caused such havoc and such desperate situations within the land was going to be released. All they were interested in is their own end, regaining their position, regaining their hold over the people once again. And so the cry went up, instead of the release of Jesus Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But what of Pilate? What does history tell us? There's been many variations, but this one I come across. Seven years after this happening, removed from office by the governor of Syria, alone and unwanted by Caesar, he went out into the darkness of the night and he hanged himself. Pilate says to the crowd, I find no fault in him. They said, crucify him. He says, why, what evil has he done? They said, crucify him. He took a basin of water. He washed his hands. He said, I'm innocent of the blood of this dear man but his conscience caught up with him. And seven years later, he committed suicide. But what of the, con the crowd? Not only the crowd who shouted, away with him, crucify him, but what about those who followed? The scriptures tell us there was two types of people around the cross. There was those who sitting down and watched him there. And there were those that passed by reviling him wagging their head. We were told that the Lord was crucified at Golgotha's hill outside a city wall near a proper thoroughfare. People were coming and going. Some people sat on the hillside watching. Were they meditating? Were they sympathetic to the situation? We may never know, but others who were too busy 
to linger, wagged their heads and scoffed. This also has been predicted by King David when he wrote in Psalm 22, All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out their lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighteth in him. Surely, in this day and age in which we find ourselves, people who are unable to find time to consider Jesus advertise their unwillingness and their, I use the word and I make no apology for using it, their stupidity. For blessed are those who pause along life's highways to look at the cross and ask why. But not only did the crowd hurl abuse at Jesus, but also the thieves upon the cross. The gospel writers would t- to indicate that only one did. But as we turn to Matthew and chapter, chapter 27 and verse 44, there Matthew clearly says, the thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Both got involved. Both took on that challenge of shouting abuse to Jesus. Maddened by the pain, they cursed the day they were born. Curse God for permitting this to happen. Curse the crowd for its remarks. Curse Jesus, who by his silence put them to shame. Surely the thieves were swearing, Jesus was praying, yet all three were about to die. But there was a change came, praise God. For one, he began to remember It is said that when death is at the door, that your life passes before you. I cannot confirm or deny that. But for this man, he began to remember. He began to remember the life he had lived, the things he had done, the the murders he had no doubt committed, the heartache, the pain, the sorrow that he had been responsible for. He began to remember And not only did he begin to remember, but in remembering, his heart began to change. Firstly, we see evidence of this in verse 40 of chapter 23. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, saying thou art in the same condemnation? He rebuked his companion on the cross, He rebuked him for his words, for his attitude towards Jesus. And then, having rebuked him, he makes this confession. For we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. He says, guilty as charged. There was no cry of miscarriage of justice. There was no cry, I'm innocent of the charges. But he openly admitted that he was guilty as charged. And then we see his request in verse 42. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. What was he saying? What was he asking? He was asking to be saved. As he looked upon Jesus, he was acknowledging Jesus as the Savior. He was acknowledging that what Jesus was doing on the cross, it was to provide salvation, not only for the world, but for him. He was acknowledging he was a sinner. 
and he was asking for forgiveness of sins and asking Jesus to save him. Both thieves had equal opportunity, yet both looked upon the face, as the scripture says, of the one whose face was marred more than the face of any man. Yet one saw a saviour, the other saw only a man. One called upon the Lord to be saved. One shouted abuse and rejected the Lord. For the thief on the cross, he made use of the opportunity that was provided for him. Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians 6 and 2, says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. For the thief on the cross, I believe, he had an advantage over many today because he knew he had no tomorrow. He knew the only day he had was that day. Many will acknowledge Jesus as Savior. Many will say that what he accomplished on the cross was for the forgiveness of sins. Many will admit they are sinners. Many will say they need to ask forgiveness for sins. They need to ask Jesus to save them. They'll go that far, but no further, for they will say, tomorrow, tomorrow I will do it. And when tomorrow comes, tomorrow will do it. And for them, tomorrow never comes. Paul reminds us, we have no guarantee of tomorrow. We have no guarantee of next week. The only time we are guaranteed is this moment in time. And he says, behold, now is the scepter time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is your moment of opportunity. There's no guarantee of tonight, tomorrow. Paul writing in Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The thief on the cross made his appeal, asked him for his forgiveness, not from the crowd, not from the soldiers standing round the cross, but from Jesus. For he is the only one who can forgive sins and save us. There are those who would say, for the thief on the cross, he was as a drowning man grasping at straws. Others would say, well, he had nothing to lose. If he ended up in heaven, he was in. If he didn't, he was no worse off. But yet they failed to take into account that he was speaking to Jesus. We as individuals may be able to fool our fellow man by putting on a face, by putting on an expression, by saying we're sincere in what we're saying, and yet we're not. But when dealing with God, you cannot pull the mask over the Lord's eyes. For the writer in Samuel, chapters 1 Samuel 16 says, For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. When he said, Lord, remember me, Jesus not only heard his words, but he looked into his heart, and he knew he meant what he was saying. What was he asking for? He was asking for forgiveness of sins. He was asking for assurance of salvation and heaven when the time come. And that was coming very soon for him. 
For, for we read in First John chapter one and verse nine, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what was the response to His request? The Lord answered, as we read in verse forty-three, "I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise." His answer was plain and straightforward. He forgave him his sins, he saved him, and he gave him that assurance that when the time would come, before that day would be out, when his life would be gone, it would be absent from the body and present with the Lord. See, this man had history, but the Lord didn't remember the history. He remembered the man, the sinner, who had come at, at the cross and asked, for forgiveness. For the scriptures clearly tell us, as the psalmist writes in Psalm 103 and verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah uh, in 38 and 17 says, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. And again in Isaiah 43, I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my name own sake and will not remember thy sins. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31 says, For I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And Micah in chapter 7 and verse 19 says, He will sub subdue our iniquities, and I will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. For those of us of a certain age, I suppose we remember the own Sunday school chorus, which says, B-U-R-B-U-R-I-D-I-D, -I -I buried, buried in the sea, never more to trouble me. I praise God that my history is buried in God's sea, where he has chosen never to remember it against me anymore. This was the assurance that the thief on the cross had. History and the past was the past. He became a new being, a new creation. He remembered not the history, but the new creation. Paul writing in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. But again, he writes in Galatians 6 and verse 15, For if Christ Jesus... For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. What is he saying in Galatians? He's saying religious observance, religious attention to detail, does not save you, will not save you, will not get you into heaven. It's only by becoming a new creature in Christ Jesus. The thief made his request. He could not have known what Jesus' reaction, what, what, sorry, that Jesus' reaction had been predicted by the prophet Isaiah who said, when thou shalt make a soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. The thief, unlike the prophet, wasn't able to see the end from the beginning, but he could see Jesus and ask for forgiveness. There may be many things beyond a man's comprehension, but if he can see the Lord and place his hand into the Savior's, he can be safe for all eternity.
Great is the Lord. Great is his salvation. But the challenge comes to the church in this 21st century in which we find ourselves. What will we remember? Jesus, in speaking in Matthew chapter 6, 16 and verse 18, says, I will build my church. And as we look back over the history of Ireland, 40 plus years has been a traumatic time. Many things have happened. Many things have taken place. It can only be said and described as horrendous what many people have had to deal with. But yet, Jesus is building his church. And I would not attempt to minimize what has happened, what people have suffered, what people have gone through over the last 40 plus years. But I'm reminded of the conversation in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. Peter there speaking to Jesus. He asked the question, How oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven or seventy? Jesus says not even seven times seventy. What was he saying? He said there is no limit to the number of times we forgive. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't put a limit on the number of times he would forgive us? For if he had, many of us would have run out of forgiveness a long time ago. But Jesus' forgiveness is not limited, but it is limitless. Yet, I have found myself in conversation over recent months, and my spirit has been grieved by the comments that I've heard from Christians as regards those who have called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. While there has been rejoicing in heaven over a lost sinner who's been brought into the fold and family of God, there's been no rejoicing among these individuals. I'm reminded of one man's com comments regarding a brother who had history, and he says he's got away with it. But let's look at what Jesus says. In Acts, Gospel, Acts chapter 10, we find Peter on the rooftop of the house. He's hungry. They're preparing a meal down below, and he's gone up to pray. And as he prays, he falls asleep. He sees a vision of a great sheet coming down from heaven, and all manner of animals in that sheet. And the voice of God says to him, rise, kill, and eat. And he says, not so, Lord, for I've never touched anything that is unclean. This happened on three occasions. The same request was made. The same answer was given. Then God said to Peter, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. When Jesus saves, he saves, praise his wonderful name. Matthew records for us the words of Jesus. In Matthew 6 and verse 14, For if we forgive men their trespasses, our heavenly Father will also forgive us. Therein lies the challenge to the church in this day and age in which we find ourselves. If we want to be forgiven, we have to forgive. We have to be prepared to forgive. And yet, there are many Christians who are walking a dangerous path. 
I would go as far as to say, regarding some, they are found in a backslidden state. Not that they have stopped going to church, not that they have stopped reading the Bible or stopped praying, but because they have refused to forgive. The Christian church is called upon to forgive. Many have cried, and many will yet cry, Lord, remember me. We know what Jesus remembered, but the challenge to the church in this year, 2011, is what will we remember? Will we, in the words of the chorus, see not what they used to be, but we see Jesus? Or will we remember the history? God is building His church. He says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The challenge to the church is that we don't become obstacles in the advancement of the kingdom of God. The thief on the cross said, Lord, remember me. We know what the Lord remembered. But when we meet such people, what will we remember? One other thought just before I sit down. Moses was a murderer. Saul of Tarsus, later known as the Apostle Paul, was responsible for the death, not only of Stephen, for the Scriptures clearly tell us that they laid their coats at the feet of one called Saul of Tarsus, who was consenting to his death. But Paul, even by his own admission, he says that he was responsible for many Christians being put into prison and some to death. And yet, where would the Christian church be today? but for Moses, but for the Apostle Paul? What would our copies of the Scriptures be like without the first five books of the Old Testament that were written by Moses? What would our New Testament be like without the writings of Paul? God is building His church. And to that I say, Amen.